0: Uh, well, welcome today. Uh, today we are back into one of the most powerful, one of the most famous, one of the most beautiful chapters in all of the New Testament. It's the, uh, Romans chapter eight. And in this chapter, the apostle Paul is explaining to us the power and the beauty of living life by the Spirit. Living life with the Spirit of God in us because we are followers of Jesus. And he explains from the beginning of this chapter that, first of all, there's now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we have been set free from the power of sin and death. And he goes on to explain that because the Spirit of God is at work in our hearts and our lives, that, that, that our minds can live with this sense of life and peace. He explains that we have the Spirit of God working in us and so that we have become children of God. We can call God himself Abba, Papa, We have that kind of a relationship with him. And that not only that, that we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ and with all that God has in store for us. So there's these amazing gifts that we have in our life because we walk by the Spirit. And now Paul is going to shift. He's going to begin to talk about suffering in our lives. There's all these good things he says, but what about the suffering? How do we see and understand suffering when we walk in the light of the Spirit? And so this is what Paul is going to address in this passage that we're looking at today. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. This is how he begins. He says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul begins by simply assuming that we have sufferings in our life or that we will have sufferings in our life. It isn't a matter, it isn't a, a matter of with, if, rather, But when? Suffering is a universal thing. In fact, fact, Paul says it's literally a universe thing. It isn't just humans that suffer. He says all of creation suffers. In fact, this is how he, he describes it in verse 20. He says this. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. He says this, all of creation is in bondage to decay. All of creation is steadily, irrevocably, unavoidably falling apart. It is is running down. And we know this, this is a scientific fact. This is the second law of thermodynamics that says everything is slowly, slowly degenerating. Even the sun and the stars at some point will burn out. All of creation, Paul says, is in bondage to decay. And what's true of all of creation is also true in our own lives. I mean, your heart, your, your physical heart is like a, it's like a wind-up clock. It's not an electric clock. It's not like you just switch out the batteries and it keeps going forever. It's wound up and you get a certain number of ticks. But when it's done, then you're done. There's, there's no stopping that. In fact, your whole body is wearing out, right? I mean, you could try to hide it. I try to comb what little hair I have over my bald spots. And some of you, I mean, the whole idea of cosmetics, makeup is to, you know, make your skin look like it once did. And some of you are really good at that, but it doesn't matter how good at you are at it. You can't stop that process happening in your life. Even when it comes to our relationships. The same principle applies. The closest families, the closest friend groups are eventually pulled apart by time and circumstances. One by one, you will slowly be picked apart. It's the course of everything in this world. And we hate it. I mean, we live in a culture where we view suffering as an anomaly, something that shouldn't happen or at least should never happen to us. And when it inevitably does, we get angry and resentful and we think that life or God or someone is mistreating us and that we don't deserve any of it. And if you're fortunate, I mean, if you're fortunate, you can avoid suffering for a while. I mean, if you're really fortunate, maybe even, I mean, maybe even into your 30s. But eventually, inevitably, suffering comes into our life in one way or another. So if that's the case, if suffering is inevitable in, in, this, in our lives as humans, then the question is this. How do we think about it? How do we understand it? How, how do we deal with it as people who live by the Spirit? You know, uh, when I was in uh, university, I, I paid my way through university by doing construction in the summer times. I, I did framing. I built houses, which meant, you know hammering and nails and cutting and all that kind of stuff. And there was one summer where one day I was swinging the hammer. I was nailing these nails in and and I missed one time the the nail. And with full force of my hammer, I hit my thumb. And oh my goodness, that hurt like the Dickens. Now, when I explained that to my kids, they they said, it hurt like the what? And I said, like the Dickens. And if you don't know what that means, because you don't know any slang from the 1980s, it means it hurt a lot. Like crazy a lot. And, um, and, and my thumb swole up and my thumbnail turned black. And for days it was so tender. And eventually my thumbnail fell off. And I mean, it was this incredible amount of pain in my life. But it was also so stupid. I mean, it was utterly unnecessary. It was simply carelessness that happened that, that brought this kind of unnecessary and meaningless pain in my life. And that's how many people view pain in their life. It's this utterly unnecessary, meaningless thing that happens that sometimes comes because of something stupid that they did. And other times, it's not even something that they did. I mean, like sometimes, you know, people's appendix, not mine, but like suddenly their appendix is killing, they're in great pain. And it's not like anything they've done. They didn't eat anything wrong. They didn't drink anything wrong. It just happened. And this pain, I mean, they got to go and get surgery, and there's this big pause in their life, and there's this detour, and it's just stupid, dumb, meaningless pain. And again, that's how many people think about the suffering and the pain that comes in their life. But but in this passage, the Apostle Paul is going to explain that, that if we live your life by the Spirit, the kind of suffering and pain that you're going to endure is a different kind of pain, he says, it's like the pain of childbirth. Now, I've never experienced that kind of pain, but I have seen it up close. And my wife, in the midst of, of her labor pains, explained to me that the pain that she was enduring was much greater than the Dickens, whatever that was. And, uh, and, uh, and that I probably will never understand what kind of pain that is. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure she's right. But Paul is doing something very important by comparing the suffering and pain in our life to the the pain of childbirth. He's saying really two things. First of all, he's saying this, just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean that you won't endure sometimes very significant, excruciating pain and suffering in your life. But, Unlike the other kinds of pain, the banging your thumb with a hammer or, or, or the, you know, the pain of an appendix that is exploding, this kind of pain, the pain of childbirth, is threaded throughout with a deep hope and expect, expectation of something beautiful to come out of it. It's not a meaningless pain. It is not a detour in life. It's rather on the very path to a deeper, more meaningful, more beautiful thing. Something that is going to come into your life, and so Paul, in this passage, is going to use this imagery to help us think about and understanding uh, think about and understand light uh, the pain in our life in light of three time frames: the immediate, the intermediate, the, the mid sort of range and the, and the distant future so let's let's uh, take a look at what he says about each of these sort of time frames. The first is the immediate. Here's what he says in verse 22 and 23. He says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. See, there's that image. That imagery. Paul says creation is like groaning in the pains of childbirth. And he says, we do too. In fact, everywhere in this passage that the word groan appears, that word that Paul uses in Greek speaks of the kind of groaning that happens in childbirth. And and he says that there are times in our lives where there is pain in life, whether physical pain or emotional pain that is so intense we just say, this is not the way it is. This is not the way it should be. And we just long for a time when our bodies will be redeemed, when when we will be made new, when we will live in a world without the ravages of suffering and pain. But we're not there yet. Instead, we're right in the midst of the pain. We're, we're groaning. We're, we're laboring. The pain comes and the pain goes and then Sometimes it comes back worse than it was the first time. And and when that kind of pain comes in our life, here's here's what Paul says in verse 26. He says, in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God when you're walking through suffering in your life, when you are enduring some kind of painful experience in your world, when you, when you lie on your bed just with your pillow over your head, overwhelmed by what's happening, or, or you drive to work and the tears stream down your cheeks and you don't know what to do, you don't know how to get out of the mess you're in, and you don't even know how to pray. The Apostle Paul says this, the Holy Spirit of God who dwells in you is groaning with you and he's groaning for you. And The Spirit of God who knows the will of God is praying for you according to the will of God. Now think about that for a moment. First of all, notice that the Spirit of God, God himself, the eternal, immortal, omnipotent God of all creation, is groaning in you with the kind of pain that a woman feels when she's in labor. How can that be? How how can it be that the the God of all creation who holds the galaxies in his hand can understand that kind of pain? And the answer is the incarnation. It's what we celebrate at Christmas time every year. That the immortal eternal, omnipotent God came and took on flesh and dwelt among us and that this God knows alienation and he knows weakness and he knows hunger and he knows betrayal and torture and death and he understands suffering at the deepest levels possible. In fact, he suffered and hung on a cross so that we could have new life so that we could have, as Jesus said, in another place, so we could be born again. His pain and his suffering gave birth to new life. And so he understands pain better than any of us. And so when we are suffering, he does not abandon us. He does not abandon you in your suffering. He is not ignoring you. Rather, his very spirit that dwells in you is groaning with you and groaning for you. It's the first thing to note. But secondly, note that the prayers that he prays are in line with the will of God for us. Sometimes when you and I pray in the midst of our suffering, there are two parts to our prayers. The the core part and the stupid part. And the core part is the part that says, God, help me. I need your help. And the stupid part is, and God, I know exactly what you should do and how you should do it and when you should do it and where you should do it. So let me tell you so that you do it when I want you to do it. I don't know if you uh, ever were in a relationship with somebody uh, who broke up with you and it broke your heart. And you went to God and, you, and you, your heart was broken. You said, God, please help me. God, please bring that person back in my life. I need them in my life. Please send them back to me. And now when you look back on that time, you think, whoa, that was close. I mean, Thank God he didn't answer the stupid part of my prayer. Thank God he answered the core part of my prayer. Help me, because now I'm actually married to someone who's a much better fit for me than that person ever would have been. See, you thought you knew what was best, but God knew better. Wouldn't it be great if God always gave you what you asked for, if you knew everything that he knows? I mean, wouldn't it be great if God was so gracious that every time you prayed, he would give you only... And only give you what you have asked for, if what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knew. It turns out that's exactly what God does. Because the, the Spirit of God is at work in you, praying for you. That's how he prays. When you're groaning and suffering and you don't know what to pray, or you think you know what to do, but it isn't in line with what God has for you, the Spirit of God Himself is also groaning. But he is interceding with God on your behalf and in line with God's will for your life. I mean, when I find myself in this kind of place, when I am in that kind of suffering, my prayers start along, God, please, I need you to rescue me. Please do this and that and this. And eventually they get shortened and whittled down until my prayers are literally, literally this. God, have mercy on me. God, please have mercy on me. I don't know what to do. And as I groan, the spirit of God in me groans and he prays prayers exactly in line with God's will for my life. If you're experiencing pain and suffering, when you experience pain and suffering in your life, if you live by the spirit, if the spirit of God dwells in you, then you can know this, that God is absolutely present in the midst of your suffering. He suffers with you. But there's another aspect to your suffering. And there's another another time frame that God is at work in. If immediately he is present in the midst of your suffering, then there's an intermediate time frame that God is also at work in. If you go back to verse 17 uh, of this chapter, just before we started this passage today, the Apostle Paul writes this. Now, if we are children of God, then we are heirs, Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul says this, we are heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. But he says only if, he adds this word, if we also are willing to share in the sufferings of Jesus. You see, many people use suffering as a way to disprove the existence of God. Paul turns that on his head and he says, no, 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 if you suffer, it's a sign that you're a follower of Jesus. It's a sign that you're part of the family. If you want to share in the inheritance of the family, it means you also have to share in the suffering that happens for the family. If you want to share in the glory of Jesus, you also have to share in the sufferings. And This is a principle that runs all through the New Testament. The suffering is the path to glory Weakness is the road to strength. You remember the story of Jesus when he's on the road to uh, Emmaus after his resurrection? Uh, he died, he rose again, but but his disciples can't quite wrap their head around this yet. they don't realize that it's him and he walks on this road with these two disciples to the road on the road to Emmaus and and he says why the why are you so sad what what's going on And they say, "Do you not know and they explain about how jesus died and and, and Jesus listens and then he says this. He says this, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? See, if Jesus, our Messiah, had to suffer first before he could enter into his glory, then how foolish are we to think that somehow we can share in the glory of Jesus without also enduring suffering and pain and hardship in our lives, I mean, strength, growth, maturity, the glory of being like Jesus, all of these things are developed through suffering, through weakness, through hardship. Look, you wouldn't know it by looking at me, but there was a time where I went regularly to the gym. Now, regularly is kind of a relative term, but yeah, I went, I went, I, I, I lifted heavy things. I pulled heavy things. I, I pushed up heavy things. I grunted. And I would be lying if I didn't tell you that it felt like suffering to me every time I went. But you know, after I'd done that for a number of times, I went to the gym without lifting any of all that heavy stuff. I just grabbed a bar and I, and I pulled myself up. And I was like, whoa, look at this. In fact, I did it multiple times. Now, multiple is also a relative term. But you, you get the point. Right? I mean, when we it is through suffering and 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 weakness that much of the most deep and profound growth in your life happens when you live by the Spirit. And this is the promise that we have in the midst of the suffering that we're enduring. Here's, here's what the apostle writes in verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Though we suffer. And we will. Though we walk through deep waters, and we do, there's this promise that God has given us. And it's this, that he is working all things together for our good. The pain and the suffering that you endure in your life is not a banged thumb. It is not a burst appendix. It is not a meaningless, you know, meaningless sort of no purpose, no great value in your life. The pain in your life it's like the pain of labor. The results in the birth of something beautiful and good in your life. Now, that doesn't mean right away. I mean, my, my cousin had four children. She said when she had her fourth, fourth child, when her, she was at home when her, her water broke, uh, and she said to her husband, get the car. We got to go to the hospital right away. It's coming fast. And she said from the moment her water wor- burst at home till... The baby was born at the hospital. It was 45 minutes, just like that. Us, for our first baby, not so much. Felt kind of like 45 hours. Now, it wasn't 45 hours, but it's like that kid just didn't want to come out of there. And the labor was long and painful. Now, in the end, both beautiful kids. Both, Both good, just different time frames. In fact, in some ways you know, more beautiful because of the weight and the suffering that we went through. But I'm also a little biased because of my kid, right? We see this principle at work in the, in the scriptures. In the Bible, or in the Bible, in, in, in ancient Israel, there was this place called Dothan. It appears twice. The first time that it appears, it, it is a nowhere speck in the middle of the wilderness with simply a Well, And we read about it because that's where Joseph went to check on his brothers, to see what they were doing with the sheep. And it's where his brothers grabbed him and threw him in a well where they waited to while they tried to determine whether they were going to kill him or sell him into slavery. And while Joseph was down in that well, he, he must have cried out to God, God help me. God rescue me. God save me from what is coming. And in the end, God didn't. In the end, he was sold into slavery into Egypt and he spent years in slavery in Egypt. He followed God's ways, even in the midst of his slavery. And as a result, he ended up in prison for something that he didn't do. And he spent more years languishing in a prison, following God and saying, God, where are you? God, what is going on here? God, why am I here? Then he helped some guys and they forgot about him. But then one day God took and he raised Joseph up and made him the prime minister, the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And he gave him a wife and kids and he used Joseph to rescue his brothers that had sold him into slavery and his father and the people of Israel from certain death through famine and starvation. God worked all things together for good, but he took years and years and years. But it was so beautiful what God did. Fast forward several hundred years and now Dothan is a city. It's a major city in the nation of Israel and the prophet Elijah is staying in this city and the king of Aram sends his army to surround the entire city to capture the city with the express purpose of of arresting and, and taking Elijah captive. Elijah wakes up in the morning and he looks out at this army surrounding the city of Dothan and he prays, God, rescue us. Turn their, their eyes to blindness. And just like that, God does. And he sends his arm, the, the Israelite army out to go to, to bring them in, to, to, to surround them. Their eyes are opened. He says, feed them a nice meal and send them home. And that's what happens. And just like that, in a day, God works all things out for good for Elijah. Isn't that fascinating? One person waited years, one person in a day. One baby born in 45 minutes, one baby took a lot longer than that. You don't know what God is doing or how he's doing it in your life. You don't know how long it will take or the other things that he is arranging in your life or the lives of others. You don't know why one particular thing happens in your life and something different happens in someone else's life. That is the mystery of the sovereignty of God. But here's what you can be confident of. That God is at work in your life. And that all things will ultimately work together for your good. Because of your love for God. And your trust in him. So that means you might have to wait. And it's so hard to wait. Especially when you're suffering. You know, I sat beside... My wife and held her hand while she was in labor, and there was so much pain. It went on for a long time. But but there was also this hope, this expectancy, this promise of what was to come. As you wait, as you struggle, as you suffer, as you carry whatever burden it is, it is possible to do that with a deep undercurrent of hope. The labor will end, the child will be born. God will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And so we wait. We wait patiently. Here's what Paul explains in verse 24. He says this, but that hope, the hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Here's the second way that Paul helps us understand suffering in our life. He says this. When you live by the Spirit, the sovereignty of God means that your suffering will ultimately turn out for your good. That typically doesn't happen immediately. Sometimes. Usually it's in the intermediate. It takes time. But God will do it. It's the second sort of time frame. But there's a third time frame as well that Paul uh, talks about here. It, it, It is a future-oriented time frame. It is what he calls glory. It is the life beyond this life, the, the next life to come. <clears throat> Excuse me, when we live with God in a new heaven and a new earth. Here's, here's what he says again in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, when Paul says this, when, I, when he says, I consider, that word consider, that, that's an accounting word. That's a math word. Paul is literally saying this. He's saying, I have done the math. I have thought long and hard about this. I have considered all of the suffering that we endure, all the stuff that I have endured in my life, and I and I put it up against the glory that is due to us as followers of Jesus. He says, It's not even worth comparing. It's not even close. And you have to understand that for Paul, this isn't an academic exercise. This isn't theoretical. I mean, Paul is a man who knows suffering. Paul, Paul is beaten. He was attacked by mobs. He was stoned until they thought he was dead. He, he was threatened by bandits. He was shipwrecked. He was hungry, thirsty, falsely accused, imprisoned. I mean, here's a man who knows suffering. And he says this. He says, if you put, if you put all of my suffering, of all of our suffering on this end of the scale, And then you put all of the weight of glory that is due to us on this side. And then you go back to the suffering side and you put your thumb on it. You put your elbow on it. In fact, he says you could jump on it. And it's nothing compared to the weight of the glory that is due to us as followers of Jesus. That glory is more amazing than anything that that we will have to endure here on this earth. It is the life that we will live in the presence of God himself. And it's more than just heaven. I mean, if if the reward we got was simply to be, you know, these spirits floating around in heaven, you know, worshiping God, I mean, that would be fabulous. He says, oh, no, it's much, much more than that. It's the redemption of our bodies. We will get physical bodies, but they will be more glorious than, than already. I mean, you, you know, you have five senses. And if, if there's someone that has four senses, if, if someone's like deaf or blind, you know how much difference that makes and how you experience and, and understand life. Is Look, when our bodies are glorified, it'd be like we have 20 senses or a or 1,000 senses. I mean, what we experience now is, is, is nothing compared to what we will experience in glory at the redemption of our bodies. And where will all of this glorified living take place? Where will these physical bodies be? Well, the answer is in a renewed, restored creation. Again, this is what Paul writes in verse 19 for the creation awaits in eager expectations for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. When will creation be glorified? When we are. Creation is also like this pregnant mother that is groaning in the pains of childbirth, waiting in eager expectation to be liberated from its bondage to sin. When that day comes, it will be the same earth only more glorious. Imagine that. I mean, think how beautiful it is now. But there'll be no more earthquakes or tsunamis, no, no more no more hurricanes and floods, no more pollution and environmental degradation. Instead, it'll be this incredible place of even greater glory. And creation is longing for that. It is suffering in the, in the pains of childbirth, waiting till the day when you and I when then God's glory is revealed in us. So how does this help us in our suffering right now, in this world that is not yet glorified? Well imagine two rooms, identical rooms, with two people, one in each room, and each given the identical kind of work, a work that is tedious and boring and, and difficult. And each of them told that they have to do that same task every day for a year, 10 hours a day. But then imagine you go to the first person and you say, At the end of the year, when you have done this same task for 10 hours a day for an entire year, we're going to pay you. You get $15,000. And then you go to the other room and you say to the same guy, when you're done the year, we're going to pay you and we're going to pay you $15 million. Then you close the door and say, go to it. And three weeks later, you open the door of the first place and you know what you'll find? You'll find a, a person who is so despondent, who is so discouraged, who, is, who says to you, I, I quit, I'm out. But you go to the second door, you open the door and you know you find a guy whistling as he works. Same work, same tedious, boring Hard work. Why? Why? Because the tediousness and the hardness of it will be absolutely outweighed by the glory that will be revealed. You see, how you experience your present life is completely shaped by what you believe your ultimate future to be. If you put your hope in anything other than God, Even in good things, if you put your your hope in your career or your family or your relationships, it doesn't matter what what it is. If if it isn't God, if it's a thing from this world, it will decay. It will break down. You will endure suffering. And if that's what your hope is in, that suffering will destroy you. But if you know that there is a greater glory coming, a a new birth, a a new life, an inheritance, a, a... a glory for those who live by the Spirit, then there's a perspective that allows you to walk through the deepest sufferings without allowing them to destroy you. Because you know that day is coming when all of this suffering, which we all inevitably endure, will fall away. It will end. Because there'll be greater glory that outweighs it all. When you live by the Spirit, here's the third point that Paul makes. When you live by the Spirit, you have an eternal perspective that gives you strength in the midst of the suffering. Now, here's how Paul ends this whole passage. He says this in verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Paul ends this passage by saying this. God always finishes what he began You and me, not so much. I bet you if I looked in your garage or in your closet, I would find projects that were half started and kind of in the middle of the case. But not God. There's no unfinished projects in God's closet. The same when it comes to your life. Paul says this, God foreknew you. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, he knew who you would be. He knew about your life and he predestined you. You chose him for sure, but he chose you first. Not because of anything you did, but simply because of his incredible grace. But not only did he choose you, he called you. He, he wooed you. He, he pursued you. And when you responded, he justified you. He saved you. He paid the price for you by shedding his blood on the cross. So if God has already done all of that in your life from the beginning of time until now, do you think he's going to abandon you now? Do you think that he will leave unfinished something that he has invested so heavily in and something that he has paid such a deep price for? Not a chance. Not a chance. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it out until the day of Christ Jesus. Until the day of your glorification, if God foreknew you and predestined you and called you and justified you, he will certainly glorify you. From eternity past to eternity future, God is faithful to do what he says that he will. And right in the middle of that, right here, right now, between eternity past and eternity future, Paul drops this beautiful line. He says this. In the midst of all of the suffering and the good things in your life, it is all so that we might be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's plan and purpose for you. Thank goodness that he isn't just, you know, he he isn't just your genie in a bottle to make you have a nice, comfortable, you know, beautiful, middle-class suburban life. No, no, his purposes are much beautiful, more beautiful, much greater, to conform you and to shape you into the image of his son. Listen, suffering is going to come into your life. I guarantee it. It's a human thing. It's a a universal thing. But if you live by the Spirit, the pain that you're going to walk through will be like the pain of childbirth. Deep, intense, but threaded through with a promise that the pain will lead to something more beautiful in your life than if you never endured it in the first place. So wait patiently. Remember the glory that awaits you. It's not worth comparing to the suffering you're enduring right now and look forward to what God will do in your life as you trust in him. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Well, God, we, when it comes to the topic of suffering, God, it, it's just so hard. Father, it hurts and there's such pain in our lives and And yet, God, it's a human thing. And and God, we thank you that you you address this topic. Father, you don't simply ignore it, but instead you promise that those of us who have your spirit dwelling in us, that there's a different way that we walk through it, that there's a deep hope that we have because of who you are, because of what you're doing in our lives. And so, God, I pray today for those particularly who are walking through deep, deep waters. God, I pray that they would know your presence, that they would know your comfort. God, that even as they groan, they would know that your spirit groans within them, alongside of them and for them. And Father, that there would be this deep confidence, this quiet strength that says, I know that somewhere God will work this out for good. I know somewhere something beautiful will come. And God, may we all live in light of the glory that is due to us. Thank you, thank you for how great it is for what you're gonna do for it. God, would you help us as we follow after you? We pray it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank you again for walking with us together as we open God's word, as we understand what it says about even these things, about suffering and hardship in our lives. Let me send you out with these words to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. I will see you next week.